And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, September 22nd. 2020, and I have my good friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you, Pam? I'm wonderful. I'm looking outside, and we have sunshine, and it's just a beautiful week, so, you know, I couldn't be any better. It so. really is beautiful, and the uh, the days are getting shorter, so that's a little depressing, but um, let me start with um, a little update on uh, your census of COVID patients. Can you Can you give me a quick update? Absolutely. So um, I remember last week I said we had gone up a little bit in, in number of patients, and now this week we're down. So last week we had 11. This week we have seven. Uh, those awaiting results last week it was 24. This week it's uh, last week it was 25. This week it's 24. So one less there. And uh, total number of deaths we've had um, two additional deaths since last week. So we went from 86 to 88. Um, DuPage County, just to tell you what's going on in the state and the county, DuPage County went from 16,022 patients uh, to 16,799 positive patients with uh, deaths going from 645 to 650. Our state went from 261,371 patients that were positive to 275,735 that are positive and deaths went from 8,309 to 8,457 and our discharges, the good news is that we have discharged, we went up from 531 patients discharged to 546 patients discharged. So our discharges continue to go up and the Recovery rate continues to be around 94% for the state, so that's really good news. Good. As far as testing capabilities go, um, are you being pushed? Or are the Is your capacity um, being reached, or you have a lot of excess capacity at this point? Oh, um, in terms of testing, it depends on the day, obviously, but we do have capacity. We currently still have four different COVID testing systems running in our lab. Three of those four test systems um, currently ha have limited ability to make runs during the day, so it does limit our um, number of, of tests we can do as well as limiting on the testing reagents. Fortunately, we currently have enough test reagents to run a large automated analyzer. It's called the M2000 at full capacity. The M2000 is running about 450 tests per day. In addition to the COVID tests we can run in-house, we currently are working with three outside reference laboratories who have agreed to run COVID tests that we can't run in-house on our four testing platforms. So combined, these three different reference laboratories have agreed to run up to uh, 800 tests per day. And so far, we've only needed to send out to those laboratories 200 tests per day. So we still have capacity to get testing done on at least another 600 tests per day. Are the ones that you send out, do they take a little longer to get the results, I take it? They do. They usually take a, a you know two to four day turnaround time. I know that most of the COVID patients that need hospitalization are there because of very acute respiratory problems. Are there other 
symptoms that might require hospitalization as it relates to a COVID patient? Yeah, see, most of the patients come in because of increasing shortness of breath but and low oxygen levels. Sometimes people have low oxygen levels that don't even have the shortness of breath, which is sometimes ironic because they're surprised when they find out that they, they just don't feel good and they get tested and, and their oxygen levels are low. They might come in for dehydration or they might come in for their high fever. So there's a variety of different symptoms that cause them to be hospitalized. And, of course, if they've got comorbid conditions along with those symptoms, that might be why they would end up being hospitalized. Have the fevers been pretty high in certain cases? There have been some high fevers. I don't know how high they've gone, but um, yes, some of them are very high fevers. And as far as the the effect on the lungs of the disease, what exactly happens in the lungs? Is it it a destruction of tissue or is it a paralysis of the the lungs, or is it fluid, or all of the above? Well, it's an inflammation in the lungs, and it makes you feel like you like you're an asthma person, like you have a really tight chest and chest pain. Um, so the the airway within the lungs are inflamed, so um, causing you to have trouble taking in oxygen, um, and and usually. After you've been ill and had the lungs impacted, it takes a while for your lungs to recover, but um, usually people do recover from their lungs return to normal capacity eventually. Sometimes it takes longer than other times. So it it appears that there aren't too many long-term effects on the lungs, or at least permanent. At least at this moment, that's what we have seen. So I know that the information that the medical community is learning about the disease is ever-changing because it is still so new. Um, so how do the, the medical professionals at Elmhurst Hospital, for instance, um, learn what the, what the latest developments are with the disease outside of what they see with the patients inside the walls of the hospital? So that's a, a really great question, and it depends on who the medical professionals are. The people who are the experts for us are infectious disease physicians, and they spend all their time, besides working, is researching the CDC's current guidelines. They work with their infectious disease societies, and then they collaborate with other infectious disease physicians across the country and in the community. So we have a a group that's here that's part of a very large group that's all across the country, and so they've got inside information all the time about what's the latest data related to the illness. And then we take that and make sure that other people are aware of what the latest information is. So they have meetings then with the staff? Is that how that works? So the, the, the system infection control medical directors attend the different medical staff department meetings to provide information. And then we do send things out through the email system that we call DocBox. So it goes just to doctors with all the latest data as well. So we're constantly updating our medical staffs. And we've had medical staff town hall meetings as well where um, our chief medical officers and our infectious disease doctors and our OC health doctors have been on the town halls to answer any physician questions about what's the latest information related to the coronavirus. I know a lot of doctors um, are basically independent contractors that have rights to practice at the hospital and some are on staff like the hospitalists, but those that are independent, do they 
they seem to pretty much consistently treat this disease or are there different schools of thought depending on which doctor you have you may get a whole different treatment regimen well i don't think it's so much on a different doctors causing different treatment regimens i think it's what the symptoms of the patient is that causes you to choose to go one direction or another our physicians collaborate with each other and if somebody's in critical care we have a group of physicians that oversee all the critical care care so they work collaboratively with independent doctors to make sure that the latest treatment is being administered. And then we have developed protocols, um, evidence-based protocols for treatment of the coronavirus through all of our physicians and our infectious disease physicians. So the doctors will follow those protocols as well. In in terms of the, the administration, you know, you obviously being at the top of that at Elmhurst Hospital, um, I know hospitals are a business and they're very competitive. Do you share best practices in terms of how you operate the hospital? And I'm not talking about behind the operating room walls, but, but you know, how to keep um, maybe non-medical staff safe during this? We talk all the time. First of all, the IHA is a one Illinois Hospital Association, which is a subset of the American Hospital Association. We have, um, have, forums where we're constantly communicating and sending out information on best practices, both in staff safety and personal protective equipment, in treatment modalities. Um, And then all our CMOs in the area communicate constantly, our chief medical officers, about what are we doing, what are people seeing in terms of outcomes, best practices, what are we doing with our staff. So the chief nursing officers communicate and and the administrators communicate. So where are you sourcing um, enough equipment? How are, you know, what are you running short of? What are the issues? Screening, is everybody doing screening similarly? Because we want to make sure that the community is safe and we don't care where somebody goes. We want to make sure everybody has the best practices. And as it relates to how you communicate with the the, uh, government agencies, officials, whether it be the... Illinois Department of Health or or politicians in terms of funding needs, how does most of that communication happen? Is it through your PR department or more, um, you know, through a government relations department? How does that work? No, we submit daily reports to IDPH. Um, so our infectious disease individuals in our ACT Health submit daily reports seven days a week to Health and Human Services. We report um, availability of medications. We report number of ventilators available. We report our supply of uh, personal protective equipment, or PPE. We report our volumes, and we report our bed capacity. And as it relates to COVID in particular and working with the insurance companies, how is that going? I know that we've, we've uh, talked a lot about reimbursements not being sufficient to cover the cost of care. Is anything changing on that front? Well, actually, um, the insurance companies have been pretty good in handling our COVID claims. So from what we have seen and what we've been monitoring, anybody who has insurance, we are getting those claims paid. It is those people who have lost their insurance because they've lost their jobs, which is a lot of people, um, that we continue to have um, issues with having reimbursement. The big story the last week or so, or the last few days at least, is, at least, is the CDC had posted something on their website about the fact that 
the coronavirus uh, may remain suspended in the air and travel a lot further than six feet and that six feet social distancing isn't isn't enough in many cases and that guidance was taken down right away um, or at least retracted and I just wonder you know is does the medical community at least the local medical community think that may actually be the case and they're just being cautious before they put that guidance out there <laughs> so um, I think that that's a, a great question. The reality is when we first brought up six feet, there was a lot of vacillation between is it six feet, is it seven feet, is it 10 feet, is it three feet, you know, and I think a lot of it has to do with the amount of um, of the the disease that's being circulated in the air at that moment, how much um, airflow is happening. So like if you're outside, it you don't require six feet because there's a lot of wind moving the particles and spreading the particles around versus if you're sitting in a crowded room and a lot of dense particles are going at the same, you know, all around you, it could spread further. So we're monitoring this as closely as we can with the CDC and um, we've been reaching out to our infectious disease societies to see if they have any different data. But at this point, we're still going with the six feet number. Okay. Well, I, I kind of put you on the spot with that, but um, I'm going to be paying attention and I'm sure a lot of folks will to see if the CDC does in fact come out with that guidance. And I'm, I know you folks will be looking at that too. Um, we've talked a lot about mental health suffering. And when we started the program, I mentioned how the days are shortening. So that means winter is right around the corner. People may even be more isolated and be less likely to want to go outside and get a little fresh air. So is there some concern that uh, people who have problems with depression or anxiety may really be having even more trouble? Absolutely. We are very concerned because, I don't know if you've heard, but statistically, suicide rate in DuPage County is, is just growing. It's growing everywhere, but you know, in, in DuPage County, it's growing. And no matter how much we talk about mental health and how important mental health is to um to us being able to take care of people and keep that prevent suicidality or drug abuse, um, people still are you know do not reach out. So one of the things that that's important in terms of as the days get shorter is people can be affected by um, a disease called seasonal affective disorder, and that really is about having less sunlight, um, which is during the fall and winter months. And it leads to, seasonal affective disorder leads to low energy levels, increased sad days, and, and a lack of experiencing pleasure. And for, um, and for other people, it could be even worse. It could be suicidal thoughts and self-harm. And so to, to um, stop or to help reduce the impact of seasonal affective disorder on yourself, if you have regular exercise, if you eat healthy, and you schedule activities that increase your energy level, that can help prevent some of the effects of seasonal affective disorder. The other thing, some people get lights that help them um, feel more energy from the light because what happens is sometimes your vitamin D level goes down. And so you can also make an appointment with your doctor to have your vitamin D level checked. And, you know, if, if you do have a vitamin D deficiency, your doctor can prescribe something to help you raise your vitamin D level. But, it, you know, seasonal affective disorder mimics 
and the low vitamin D mimic the signs of depression, which can lead to uh, more serious depressive thoughts, suicidality, or, you know, just inability to function in your daily life. So if anybody does have any concerns with seasonal affective disorder and it's not just a little bit of low energy and a little bit of sad days that can be helped with the things I spoke about, regular exercise, healthy eating, and scheduling activities, but you're really concerned, you can still call Linden Oaks Hospital for a free confidential assessment, and that number is 630-305-5027, and again, it is a free confidential assessment, and, and if they find that you need something, they will give you many alternatives. Even if you don't want to go there, they will tell you other places you can go get help if you need it. But this is available to anybody. Again, free confidential assessment at 630-305-5027. Great information. Thank you. I have one last thing I want to ask you about, and that is that when this pandemic first got going the first couple months, um, you had mentioned there was a lot of support in the community. Is that uh, continuing? Well, it, it does continue, and we had something very special yesterday. Uh, Pete DeCiani, who was a former mayor of Elmhurst, and um, him and the current coroner, uh, Dr. Jorgensen, came by and had worked with some of the community um, organizations to help raise uh, some resources to be able to feed the hospital staff at um, on our COVID floors yesterday, as well as the police and the fire. And I just want to acknowledge that uh, Greco Foods supplied all of the food for free, and um, Francesca's and Armand, Armand's, uh, they, they made all the food and brought it over, and Vero uh, provided coffee and uh, gelato for the staff. And so that was greatly appreciated because, you know, the staff had a lot of food and support in the beginning, and then as we've gotten used to what's going on, there hasn't been as much, which is fine, but everybody's kind of getting tired and worn out, and this was a really nice little perk that helped those staff have a really special day yesterday, and, and the police and fire department felt the same way. So I just want to acknowledge all of them for their great support of our hospital and for our um, service areas. Well, that's great to hear, and I was over by the hospital campus last week, and I noticed some signs of support up still, so... That's that's great to see, and I'm glad that people still appreciate what you all are doing over there because I'm sure it can get very tiring. And I uh, just like we talked about the mental health of, of folks in in society, I uh, I hope that the folks within the walls of the hospital are taking care of themselves too and taking your advice. and And I do want to repeat that number, Linden Oaks Hospital, for a, you said a free confidential evaluation uh, was six three zero three zero five. 5027. Pam, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it and uh, have a great rest of your week. You too. I appreciate you and I appreciate everything you're doing. So thank you and have a great week. This is Aaron Jason, Business Development Coordinator for the City of Elmhurst. Now more than ever, we're asking the community of Elmhurst to please fill out your U.S. 2020 Census. It's quick, safe, and easy and you can do it online at my2020census.gov. Thank you. Hello, Pete Kruger here from the Elmhurst Independent Newspaper. When I want a good laugh, I listen to E-Town Lowdown, even though Rick, Robbie, and PK podcast from a hot tub, they're three cool dudes. 
my money on a bobtail nag. The staff and management of the E-Town Lowdown would like to assure our more sensitive listeners that our food critic Sal is really half Italian. His mother is from Poland and his father is from the great country of Italy. We hope you will enjoy and not be offended. Hey friends, Slappy Sal here for the E-Town Lowdown. Here to tell you about a new place to eat in E-Town. It's called Primos Locos, or Cugini Pazzi, for all you Italians out there. Or uh, Crazy Cousins, if you speak British. So Primos Locos opens up in the old McNally's location on York Road, just down the street from the tracks near downtown. So in honor of their name, I grabbed my two craziest cousins, Big Head Mike and Jimmy the Fish, and we headed over there to try it out. Instead of ordering separately, we just got a table full of tacos and we split them all up. You know what I mean? We had carne asada, al pastor, you know, pork shoulder, and chicken, and then we had to get fish for Cousin Jimmy. And you know what? They were all good. The people behind us looked like they ordered up some enchiladas and some fajitas, but I couldn't see on account of Mike's big head getting in my way. But it all smelled fantastic. The other thing about Primo's Locos is the drinks. Good quality tequila put in handcrafted cocktails like margaritas. And they also got Mexican craft beers on draft from a brewery in Chicago called uh, Hasa Humilde, or Humble House. Two brothers started it out in the Hermosa neighborhood. Great beers, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? So me and my Cugini sat around, ate some tacos, had some drinks. It was a good time. Legit, authentic food and nice environment. After we're done, me, Big Head Mike, and Jimmy the Fish argued about how to say uber in spanish but ultimately the driver came and took us back to the old neighborhood so in summary primos locos gets the cugini seal of approval go enjoy some chips and guac have a drink and relax remember what mark twain once said part of the secret of success in life is to eat what you like and let the food fight it out on the inside this is slappy sale reporting for the eat town lowdown the E-Town Lowdown, brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra, featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.